Welcome to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati. And I don't know about you guys, I don't know where you are right now, but it is getting steamy here in the Rue Morgue Vault. It is summer, million dollar, multi-million dollar films are opening every weekend now. So that means one thing, it is blockbuster season, and not the video store, actual like movies that are coming out that you have to pay money to see and can't download. We at the faculty felt it was important to talk about this very strange and very small phenomenon of the horror blockbuster film because it is kind of an anomaly that has appeared every, you know, couple years, you know, a couple times a decade it pops up. But horror films are generally seen as being subversive or on the outskirts of good taste, however you want to put it. So it's a very interesting thing to me that a major studio would take hundreds of millions of dollars and try to make one of these films and make them for the masses. I think you touched on a really interesting point there is the fact that a lot of the most popular and successful horror movies were these sleeper hits, right? These independent films that just blew up and became huge. And the thing with blockbusters is these studios don't like to take much of a risk when it comes to making a movie with that big a budget. I think Jaws just blew everyone's minds, and so there were so many blockbuster Jaws spinoffs, right? Trying to recreate what Jaws did right. And in the case with the horror blockbuster, particularly in the cases of the two that we're going to be looking at in this episode, there were precedents. There were successful things that were in place preempting these blockbusters, which is what made these companies think that they would be such huge successes. Anyone out there who has done their homework, you know that we are not talking about two excellent, awesome, amazing movies. Well, and I think it's interesting to note, I have been reading articles, you know, especially in the last few summers, and I think it kind of really crystallized in the last few years, that there's no blockbuster film, blockbuster film period, that's coming out this summer or last summer that wasn't attached to some kind of pre-existing property. So it's not a sequel, it's not a remake, it's not a reboot, it's not based on a book or a comic or something like that. They all have some kind of internal history that has enough of the base and then studios feel that they can exploit those qualities enough to get a big market in there. And it's true. I think both of the movies that we talk about did more or less make their money back, didn't they? Oh, totally. And they, they both did. completely stink. So what does that say about horror blockbusters, folks? Ugh, there'll always be a sequel. No matter what you do, they'll always come back. So the first film we're going to be talking about today is The Haunting, the 1999 film by Jan de Bont. And this is a remake of Robert Wise's 1963 film, The Haunting, which in turn is based on Shirley Jackson's novel, The Haunting of Hill House. Thank you. 
There once was a house. A bright, happy home. Something bad happened. Now it sits all alone. Is this where you're going? That's Hill House. It's perfect, isn't it? You all suffer from sleep disorders. My job is to find out why. What's the deal with the Adams Family Mansion? I gotta be honest, I don't get a real strong sleep vibe from this place. <laughs> don't you love it here? This is so twisted. Calling it an insomnia study allows me to create a highly suggestive environment to observe the dynamics of fear. You don't tell the rats, they're actually in a maze. I just think Dr. Marrow's up to something. Have you ever kept something to yourself because you were afraid? All the time. I'm sorry. of the haunting it, it does take quite a bit in terms of premise from Shirley Jackson's novel and then Robert Wise's subsequent film but it deviates in really massive perplexing ways which I think we'll be able to make sense of through this discussion so the story of the haunting the 1999 version follows Eleanor or Nell and she is a young woman coping with the recent death of her mother and an overbearing sister one day, she receives a phone call telling her about an ad paying for insomniacs and their participation in a study. This study is run by Dr. Marrow, and in actual fact, it's a study in fear and the effects of fear. Dr. Marrow has rented Hill House, a house that is perceived to be quote-unquote born bad. Nell and Dr. Marrow are joined by Theo and Luke, two other participants in this test. Dr. Marrow's test relies on the suggestion of fear, but he doesn't realize that Hill House is actually haunted, and it is haunted primarily by its builder and patriarch, Hugh Crane. Now, Hugh Crane in this is, you know, this omnipresent figure through portraits and history, and he, it is uncovered in the film, had a real penchant for, you know, murdering children. So there's a lot of childhood iconography and child faces built into the house, which also begin to animate and are also kind of haunting the house, but in a much more positive way, and they're guiding Nell towards uncovering the mystery. As the paranormal activity grows in intensity, Nell decides to sacrifice herself to free the children and subdue the menacing Ukraine, casting him to hell, and in the end of the film, she ascends to heaven. Right. 
And if that doesn't sound like a real scary chiller, it's because it's really not at all. Now, obviously, we need to make mention of the original film. There's a lot of remakes out there where, like, oh, I really liked that first film, and uh, they never should have gone there. This is really a great example of exactly one of those. The first film is commonly regarded as one of the most terrifying films. It's got plot holes, and it's not perfect, but it scared the living shit out of a lot, a lot of people. I actually wrote a big article in Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I believe it's in the issue that's out this month in June 2015, and it's just kind of about the making and reception of Robert Wise's The Haunting, and I watched that movie one night by myself, you know, a couple months ago, alone in my house, my roommates were out, and I was genuinely scared. I was completely freaked out. I've seen that movie, like, multiple times, but every time it just gets me in a new way, and it really got to be the top of so many horror fans' lists. God, it knows I'm here! Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. Now look, Doc, we're buddies, okay? But don't try to convert me. I'm trying to prepare you. My name's Markway, Dr. Markway. A scientist interested in the supernatural. The unnatural, if you like. I came to Hill House to find the key to another world. Assisting me in this exploration of the unknown was Eleanor. Nell, who could look back into the past. And Theo, something of a witch who could see into the future. This is Luke, who didn't believe in anything. Until evil, patient and waiting made him change his mind. Stop it! God. God. Whose hand was I holding? How many of us take seriously the things we cannot or do not want to understand simply because we are afraid? Eleanor, you're poor! Did you hear me calling? This house. You have to watch it every minute. The Haunting was produced and directed by Robert Wise, brilliant producer of West Side Story. The stars consist of a cross-section of top talent in the world of entertainment. Julie Harris, Claire Bloom, Richard Johnson, Russ Tamblin. What does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace? But some houses, like Hill House, are born bad. on suggestion. It's incredibly creepy and it relies a lot on camera tricks and it's really playing between, you know, in that film version, is it all in Eleanor's head or is the house really haunted? And, you know, you never really get a clear answer and it's all in the imagination. So as we've been talking about recently in films like The Blair Witch or the Paranormal Activity series, it's really about what you invest in the film and The Haunting really, really plays into that so well. That's right. And then you come to this remake, which is really odd in many respects. It's flawed in several respects, but 
in doing my research, I realized that the problems people had with this film kind of differed with mine and differed from person to person. I mean, everybody agrees that it's kind of a colossal fail. I, I found it really odd that Dr. Marrow's motives are so bizarre. Like, you're studying fear? Why exactly? And he kind of gives this, this weird reasoning that really doesn't hold any water straight out the gates in the film. What is fear anyway? It's a series of automatic responses to a given stimulus, characterized by increased heart rate, respiratory activity, and adrenaline function. The only problem with fear is that it's largely become inappropriate and non-adaptive. Do sweaty palms help to talk to your boss? Does a, a racing pulse help some kids score in an SAT? And it's so strange to me that he would reveal this so early in the film when that might have been maybe a major plot point a little later when he reveals it to the rest of the group. He could have revealed it to the audience at the same time. Oh, completely. And the tone of the piece is so strange. I had only ever seen this film once before, and I saw it in theaters. So it came out in 99, so I would have been like 14. And I remember going to see it and kind of being excited because all my friends wanted to go see it because it was a big blockbuster film. So that was cool. That was fine. And it was, you know, it was kind of horror-y, so I got to see it. And I just remember being very like, oh, oh, oh. But going back to this film, there is a moment quite early on in the film which I was really like, oh, no one in this film knows what they're doing or understands how to shoot something that could be interesting or funny or subversive. And it's the scene where Nell's character, who's played by Lily Tomlin, who's a really incredible underrated indie actress, she's the lead in this film. She arrives at Hill House, she's the first one to arrive, and the creepy housekeeper gives her the tour and is like, no one comes here after dark. There is a reason. No one will come further than the village. And it, I get tingles just thinking about that because that's so fucking creepy. And that's taken from the original book and then subsequent film. And then Theo, the kind of bisexual city lady, played by the incredibly beautiful Catherine Zeta-Jones, arrives. And the housekeeper dispenses the same warning or wisdom. And Nell starts kind of mocking and parroting that information back at her. And it is so – like I was watching it a couple weeks ago going – oh, this should be really funny and kind of cute and winky to the audience. But I was like, I am uncomfortable watching this. I don't know what's going on. I leave before dark comes. So there won't be anyone here if you need help. We couldn't even hear you. No one could. No one lives any nearer than town. No one will come any nearer than that. In the night. In the dark. I actually found that part pretty hilarious. There were several parts in this film that I laughed out loud. I mean, nothing in this film is ever subtle or implied as it is in typical horror. It's one of the things I love about horror is it leaves a lot up to the imagination, but they spelled everything out. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I think, is just, you know poor writing. Mm. It's PG-13 and they're just going to spill everything out for you but there was also a whole lot of really bad CGI in this film and it was around the time when CGI was kind of really blowing up. I, I don't know a lot about computer animation technology but I do remember that there was a time that everything coming out was packed with it and they put it everywhere they could and in this particular film there are instances where it's done well and there are instances where it's not done very well but in any case you've got these actors who need to pretend something is happening something that's going to be added in in post-production so it, like it wasn't enough for them to just be like your breath is going to show there is going to be <laughs> steam coming out of your mouth and they had to be like oh, oh, oh do you see that do you see the steam I see steam oh, oh, oh. and it's so overdone and painful to watch and it just looks like hell the cold can you feel it now can you feel it 
Well, it's interesting, in the production history of this film, the remake of The Haunting had kind of been in the works for a long time, especially since the early 90s. Now, initially, it was supposed to be developed with Steven Spielberg directing and Stephen King writing the screenplay, and they couldn't really come to terms with the tone. It seemed to be kind of an amicable breakup, and one of those things exists. And they both kind of parted ways because Stephen King wanted more horror and Steven Spielberg wanted more action, and they just couldn't really meet in the middle. And eventually, Stephen King would go on to rebuy the script from the studio and repurpose it and make it into the TV miniseries Rose Red. It was then kind of redeveloped again in the mid-90s. I believe it was with Dimension Films, and it was supposed to be with Wes Craven directing, but again, that all fell apart pretty quickly. And this just seemed to be, this version, this iteration that we have, the 1999 version, seems to just kind of be cobbled together because no one else had a better idea. So in the mid to late 90s, you had a couple interesting horror remakes happen before horror remakes were like a really big thing as they were in the 2000s. So you had a remake of Diabolique or Les Diabolique in 1996. And then you had Gus Van Sant's shot for shot remake of Psycho in 1998. Now, both of those films were kind of reviled, but they got good press. There was a ton of interest in them, at least to watch them fail, perhaps. So if the studio could invest a lot of money in The Haunt, remake and make it more like a bonkers action film with huge set pieces, then it would certainly make its money back, right? Right. And it did pull some big names. We've got Catherine Zeta-Jones playing Theo, and you're right, she's absolutely breathtaking. Like, she steals the show just by virtue of being in the shot. <laughs> You've got Owen Wilson with, well, like, where the fuck did he come from? Was he even that big back then? Well, it's interesting, because both Catherine Zeta-Jones and Owen Wilson had had some minor hits. So Catherine Zeta-Jones was quite a big star in the UK. She'd been in a BBC miniseries called The Darling Buds of May, which my parents love. Then she was in the really big hit, The Mask of Zorro, in 1998. So the studio kind of scooped her up after that. And then really, Owen Wilson, he'd had a big little splash, if that makes any sense, with the first Wes Anderson film called Bottle Rocket, which he also co-wrote. So he's really charming and funny in that movie. So it makes sense that they would bring him on as a kind of charming and funny counterpoint in this film. Right. But no. No. And then you've also got Liam Neeson playing Dr. Marrow and a fun little horror cameo by Bruce Dern who pops up at the very beginning and the very end and he's the groundskeeper who has this stupid shitty jump scare and emerging and being like, hey, you're not going to have very much fun at this hill house and then at the very end to be like, hey, I told you so. I was right, wasn't I? <laughs> well, and I think it does feel very much like an amusement park ride from the second you enter this house and it's this gorgeous but creepy Victorian house which they were able to get an exterior shots of so it's very evocative very similar to the Robert Wise film in that kind of stature and grandeur and then when you go inside and you're watching the characters explore the house it's so clearly a soundstage it's like they shot it on soundstage McGillicuddy that you couldn't get any more soundstagey if you tried but it does very much feel like that amusement park ride where you're going from room to room to room each character making a comment on the room, and then when they all have to run through them again at the climax, it all makes a ton more sense. Yeah, it's really spelled out for you. It's like the foreshadowing comes a mile away. Something's going to happen in here, and something's going to happen in here, and oh, look at that, it's a flu. I wonder if that'll <laughs> kill him in a minute. Uh, I really feel like this film, it did have some potential thematically, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, but I almost hope someone gives it another shot. 
Really? I kind of hope that a feminist director is going to pick up on these themes of heaven and hell and purgatory and about how Nell, who is grieving her mother and desperately needs to feel needed, there's that whole scene at the very beginning where she's confronted by her sister, played by Virginia Madsen, where they kind of say to each other, you have no idea what life is like. You have no idea what life is like out there with a the family, and you have no idea what life is like in here dealing with our ailing mom. Come live with us now. You have no idea how hard it is out there. No, Jane. You have no idea how hard it was in here. And so we've got this grieving, childless, single woman who's also P.S. an insomniac for reasons unknown, coming to this house and feeling needed and having this whole mystery that's tied up with the damage of children and the lack of a matriarch and she just gets all embroiled into it and there's some really dark themes going on there that I really feel like could be done better. Yeah, I think that's actually the most shocking thing about this remake is how dark and upsetting the choices that characters make throughout the film are, but how quickly they're also glossed over. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's even scarier when they aren't really dealt with. It's like skipping a stone over the water. You aren't delving into anything. You know, and I think it's a really big point to bring up that, you know, in Shirley Jackson's novel and then the original film version, the house, it's just, again, it's quote-unquote born bad. It's the house is the antagonist. Whereas in this one, they really center the evil and the anger on Hugh Crane, the patriarch and the builder of the house, that there's something deeply evil and venomous within him. So it's up to Nell to uncover those secrets, discover who she truly is through this film, and then she has to give herself up in order to, you know, free the children that are trapped there and, you know, their spirits and ghosts. She has to give herself up to them. And it's, you know, ultimately a very huge matriarchal sacrifice that she makes to liberate this whole entire house and everyone trapped within it. I feel like it's interesting that she's simultaneously trying to flee the danger and also confront it and then winds up sacrificing herself and that being the ultimate solution that it's almost like the appeasement of this virgin sacrifice will settle the house right down. Well, I actually thought... That possibly inadvertently, because I highly doubt Yann de Bont and uh, the screenwriter David Selp have read a lot of Carol Clover, but I really saw that they were kind of taking on the mantle of the final girl or the female hero in a genre of film with their remake of The Haunting, because in the original story, and again, original film, Nell is very much, you know, she's not on an even keel, and you're following her and you empathize with her, but you're not with her. You don't see her fight and win in the end. She succumbs. That's truly my understanding of that film. So it's interesting that they set up Nell as a kind of strong, capable, intense heroine who has an antagonist to overcome. And so in that sense, she does kind of become like an early version of Ripley or Laurie Strode or Nancy Thompson, where this fight defines her character. That's right. They introduce this idea of needing insomniacs for this study, which is what allegedly brings this group together. I have no idea why they would make such a stylistic decision when the motivation for the characters to come together in the original made so much more sense, right? We're just interested in the paranormal. We want to check out this fucking haunted house. That's cool. That Like, horror fans are going to get behind that and be like, all right, these people are rad. You know, they could have made Theo a little bit more gothy. They could have made Luke a hell of a lot more interesting instead of just popping up toward the end in his Star Trek uniform. (laughs) Did you not think that shirt looked like a Star Trek uniform? 
Well, and it's interesting, especially the Luke character. I, I kept thinking about it because Owen Wilson was not the star that he is right now or whenever he was a star. But he did have that little success, as I mentioned, with Bottle Rocket. So studios, I think, were kind of circling him and trying to get him into stuff to bolster their casts. But in the original film and story, he had a financial tie to the house. He wanted to actually see. He wanted to, like, make sure no one was going to fuck with the house. And he wasn't a bad guy. He just... He had a bit more invested. And this kind of Luke character who's funny and charming and has a southern drawl, he meanders through scenes and kind of hits on Theo and is then really awkward with Nell. It's it's not much fun to watch. No, his resting duck face infuriates me. I can't even stand it. <laughs> and up to the point when he gets his head taken off, spoiler alert, I was actually getting really impatient with the lack of violence in this film. It's like PG-13 aside, is someone even going to get hurt? Really? That was the one thing I remembered from the film when I saw it the first time. I knew Owen Wilson's head was going to get taken off by a swinging lion head. Oh my god. Luke, get out now! Luke! of secondary characters, I did want to touch on the character of Theo, who is, as we mentioned, played by Catherine Zeta-Jones. And again, she had just come into the American market. She was terrific in Mask of Zorro, had a lot of energy, and was very charismatic in that part. And I think she kind of tries to, like, shove herself into the film in the same kind of way. She has a lot of energy, and she is working. Every scene she is in, she is really trying to impress some kind of charm or humor. And I and I do actually respect that. I think a lot of other actresses may have sat back in their part, but she was really quite forward in it, which I liked. But I did think it was quite interesting in that Theo in the 1999 version was extraordinarily interesting in comparison to the 1963 version where Theo is very much a lesbian, and she, or she comes out as one in, throughout the film, and she seems to be very romantically interested in Nell. That's actually quite a big part of the film and that relationship. It's quite revolutionary to look at a film in 1963 and not have anyone freak out over a homosexual character who's actively interested in someone who seems to be a straight character. But in the 1999 version, they repurposed that character to be bisexual. She mentions having a boyfriend and a girlfriend, living in the city. She's an artist. Oh, you mean you have trouble with commitment? Well, my boyfriend thinks so, my girlfriend doesn't. We could all live together, but they hate each other. And that's kind of all that's said about it. You know, she seems to really care about Nell. She seems to like her and want to bond with her, but not in a romantic way. Not that that's necessary, but it kind of downplayed the whole thing quite a bit. It was, you know, an interesting exclamation point to have in the middle of, again, an $80 million blockbuster in 1999, have a character openly say that they're bisexual, and then have it not mean anything. Oh, that's right. It's to have her be a beautiful woman who's bisexual and not someone who's very masculine. Like, if Ripley had to come out like that, it would have been like, oh. But <laughs> I think that was part of the reason why the original Theo in the original film was such a big deal, is it was a very feminine, attractive, and non-threatening 
lesbian, which mm. is probably the most threatening kind of lesbian there is. <laughs> but I did notice a bit of sexual tension, or maybe I was looking for it. Maybe not. Maybe you listeners can tell me if it was really there. But in the scene where she gives Nell that shawl, she's kind of oh, like, yeah. I think this would look lovely on you. And she puts it on her shoulder. And at first, Nell kind of cringes away from her. And I was like, what the fuck is her problem? I was like, has there been any incident where she would maybe suspect that Theo is fucking with her or making fun of her or causing these supernatural seeming things to happen or why would she kind of hesitate in that way? Is she intimidated by Theo's sittiness or the bright colors in this shawl that she's (laughs) trying to put on me? But I actually think that she might have been taken a bit aback, worried that it was a sexual advance, which I thought was kind of interesting. And I really thought that that shawl would play in later and it sure didn't. That scene had a weird weight to it that I was looking for meaning and couldn't find it. Oh my god, if it wasn't CGI, Yann DeBont did not pay attention to it. You know, some of the CGI didn't look terrible. I was half expecting that shawl to become like a CGI ghost and like chase everyone around the house. I actually thought the CGI when it came to fabrics looked kind of all right. At one point there was a spirit that went up the sheets and like that looks half decent. But I specifically remember the CGI cherub kids Oh, looking really fucked up, and uh, and the mouth. Steam and the thank you now, thank you now, thank you now. We love you now. Fuck those cherubs. So you really can't escape the bukkake of CGI that it is. To the point when you see a ghost or some kind of entity, you know, as Andrea was just saying, go under the covers and kind of approach Nell as she's in bed. I was thinking, I was like, you know, if you ask someone, if you asked a horror fan, what's the best under the bed sheet scene in a horror film? I I feel like the quickest answer would be paranormal activity which had that like gentle blow in the covers when they're sleeping. And it's actually like for a film where there's not a lot going on, so it's those little moments that ratchet up the tension, it's really quite terrifying. And then in this film, it's like, oh, look, a CGI bedsheet is moving. Yeah, they were really heavy-handed with the CGI, and I think it was to the point that subsequent blockbusters were like, yeah, maybe we should tone it back a bit because we don't want to do another haunting. Well, and that's the thing. You know, in several of the reviews I read in prep for this episode, they really go to the point of the fact that the CGI is so omnipresent that it becomes unscary. It's completely unscary, even in the climax, when, you know, this figure of Hugh Crane is terrorizing them all, and it's supposed to be, like, really fucking upsetting. The CGI is so visual, and all I could think of when I was watching it was the made-for-TV version of The Shining, where, you know, all the uh, lawn animals are, like, fucking running around, and it's like, oh, look, did you do that on a DOS? Yeah. So run and hide! Run and hide! So I think as we've talked about in this discussion of The Haunting, a lot of the fault, it's hard to get away from it falling on its director, Jan de Bont. And if that name sounds really familiar and you don't know why, it's because he was, you know, really popular director of photography in the 80s. He really gave action films of the 80s their kind of visual style and sense. So, you know, he was director of photography on films like Die Hard. He was also director of photography on another film we've talked about, Fatal Attraction. And then in the mid-90s, he got his chance to direct, and he had a really great first film, Speed. He then followed it up with the terrible film, Twister. Then he made The Haunting, and then he went on to do other things, like one of the Lara Croft Tomb Raider films, and he just has faded into obscurity, and I'm sure made tons of money and is just 
happily sitting on some kind of European ranch somewhere. That's right. It's fully feasible that a director could ostensibly retire off the profit of even a lousy blockbuster. Because the way blockbusters work, I mean, the definition of a blockbuster at one point was that it was a popular or successful film. And the definition of popularity or success doesn't necessarily translate into critical acclaim, nor does it necessarily pertain to the financial gains made by it. You can't say something is a blockbuster just because it made good on its investment and did more than it should have because there's a lot of small indie films, low-budget films that accomplish this easily. What's interesting about the blockbuster are like these are movies with astronomical budgets that do not take tremendous creative risks. They have the precedent, like we already mentioned, with The Haunting. It was an excellent original film. And with the next film we're going to talk about, World War Z, there was this book that was kind of a blockbuster of a book. What all blockbusters have in common is that they choose to appeal to the lowest common denominator of society. They have themes that are purported to appeal to everyone. And so what's interesting to me about that is what is the lowest common denominator? It kind of calls into question how we think about the common person in our society. And judging by these movies, I would feel like our opinion of the common person in our society is pretty low. When I was doing my research for my book, I looked a lot at cultural production and who kind of calls the shots because part of the thrust of my book is how much of cultural production comes from movies, how much we learn about movies, how much we learn to be girls and learn to be boys and what relationships are like based on the relationships we see on screen. We don't watch our parents date and learn that that's how to do it. No, we learn that from TV and movies. Now, Raymond Williams was a Marxist scholar, and his whole thing was, who are the masses? When we talk about the masses, who are we talking about? And the masses are often used synonymously with the mob. We kind of perceive them as a as a big amorphous group of gullible, fickle, herd mentality people who are necessarily low of taste and low of education and just creatures of habit, you know? Like, when I think of the masses, I think of McDonald's and I think of reality TV and I think of the absolute worst society has to offer. And why is that? I can't actually base that upon anything. I can't base that upon stats or numbers. Like, it actually makes more sense for me to assume that others are like me, only a little bit different. But we don't assume that. And Raymond Williams asserts that the reason why is because the idea of the masses were actually defined by the elite to separate themselves from the working class. Like, there once was a time when certain art was very lowbrow and certain art was very highbrow. And there was theater and there was art, and theater kind of has a murky relationship with high and lowbrow around the Shakespearean era. But it was a way of othering. It was a way of socioeconomic stratification, which I see really strongly in the blockbuster. And this idea that the masses are other people and not us is, is sometimes exploited for political, cultural, or indeed economic means. And American blockbusters tend to include themes of interest to the white working class. You know, we see a lot of pro-patriotic, heterosexual, family-oriented hero. Like, the hero is the, it's a common, everyday Joe who's just thrust into bad circumstances through no fault of his own, who perseveres through spirit and drive and his ingenuity. Like, you know, definitely not his privilege, right? It's how the American dream is reified in our culture, and I see that really strongly, mostly in the next movie that we're going to talk about, but in any blockbuster, it's kind of got this morality tale twined in with it. And what's interesting about that is horror 
usually doesn't. Horror usually challenges those kind of norms. So the horror blockbuster is kind of a, a juxtaposition in terms. Oh, it's an oxymoron, 100%. And I think just even going to wrap up the discussion of The Haunting, you know, where we see those themes come through so clearly in The Haunting, it's now gets what we later learn is a ghostly call because no one ever called her about the ad, but maybe the house did because sure. But she will get 900 bucks a week or whatever it is to be a part of this study. She will earn her keep. This will solve her problems. She will be a part of something. And then finally, she gives herself over to children. She gives herself over to being a matriarchal, mothering, nurturing, loving figure in this house that will protect it. And again, it was such an odd thing. And I I think what's so interesting about the original version and the original story is how it doesn't come down on any side of femininity. It it comes down on no sides. It comes down on no sides of masculinity. But in the remake, it's very much, you know, she finally found her home and she finally found her place. And now doesn't she belong? And isn't it so beautiful? And she's beautified and she's like a Madonna now. And it's just... Uh, Could you imagine spending your life with a bunch of ghost kids? It's horrible. And furthermore, the whole idea of all these children who are stuck in purgatory, like, because he won't let them go. I mean, coming from a Roman Catholic background, I was trying to bend my head around that. And it's like, okay, you know, babies will go to purgatory if they aren't baptized, I think, and women are going to hell anyway because of original sin. I can't fucking keep it straight in my head. But there's all this pro-Christian mythology going on with this where there is a purgatory and the bad guy's going to go to hell and the children's got to go to heaven and that is also the ultimate resolution in addition to Nell finding her sweet motherly needed space. 100% and it's really interesting to me like when, uh, when we did our Christmas episode and we talked about the devil figure that is Kirk Cameron and his pro-Christian message, I don't feel like the haunting in the 1999 version had any Christian political stance at all, but it has become so ingrained in our culture that this is what serves as good and evil, and I think this is something we've come back to a few times in this podcast, that just because something is not Christian, it is perceived as evil, and it's really interesting to me that, you know, a big studio invested $80,000 in 1999 in making this film, and this kind of weird, bonkers, CGI-laden film that reifies the patriarchy it's you know fuck you guys Wes Craven could have made it I don't know how much better it would have been he left the film to make screen and thanks a lot Wes like yeah thank you Wes I really love that movie pick your fucking stinkers watch a few movies take a few notes (laughs) it was fun So moving along to the next film that we wanted to talk about in our discussion of horror blockbusters is World War Z or World War Z, depending on what region you're at. I think I might have said World War Z in the last episode when I mentioned the homework, <laughs> but in my brain I kind of say World War Z, so uh, forgive that little Canadiana in us. But basically this film was a movie adaptation of a grossly successful zombie novel written in 2006 by Max Brooks, who was the author of The Zombie Survival Guide, which ironically is why I stayed away from World War Z for a little while, because The Zombie Survival Guide, I was like, fuck, really? At that time I had already done a ton of research in zombies, and I was just like, yeah, that's what we need is a survival guide. And then this book comes out, and it just blew everyone's mind. It was amazing not quite found footage vibe, but almost. You had all these different perspectives of this zombie epidemic as recounted by the narrator. And so 
I think people were really excited about the film. It had a very sordid production history, which we're going to get into. But first, to provide a little bit of synopsis, the story begins with a character called Jerry Lane and his idyllic family and their idyllic white suburban life. And Jerry Lane is played by Brad Pitt, who is kind of the quintessential white suburban dude, right? Yeah, he's the idealized version. Right. That's what everyone wants to be. So we learn that Jerry was once a U.N. investigator, but he retired to be home with his family more as a good man would. Now the zombie outbreak hits, and Jerry and his family are able to escape and hole up with this Hispanic family until Jerry's able to leverage his U.N. hookups to have his family airlifted to safety. Privilege alert. But the family that they crash with decides to stay behind, and they're attacked. But the one son, Tommy, escapes, and Jerry adopts him and takes him home to Angelina. And what? Sorry. (laughs) What was that? I'm I'm getting my stories confused here. (laughs) Anyway, the UN doesn't want to shelter Jerry's family unless he helps them, because he's the only one who could possibly save the world, because duh. So they send him to North Korea to chat with the patient zero type thing, and then he goes to Jerusalem, where they apparently have the zombie outbreak under control, and he speaks to this Mossad agent who explains that their brilliant strategy was to build a big goddamn wall around the city. What a brilliant, brilliant strategy. Alas, the city's celebration of their own ingenuity draws the zombies to start piling on themselves, and they're able to scale the wall, causing ever more violent havoc. So Jerry escapes Jerusalem on a plane, which crashes because he detonates a fucking grenade in it, but he survives in spite of being impaled by shrapnel. And he comes to in a World Health Organization lab of some sort where he manages to determine that the zombies won't attack sick people. So if he injects himself with a deadly but curable disease, he can just stroll right past them. And he tests it on himself like a hero does, saves the world, and is reunited with his family in lovely Nova Scotia. And we think this terrible movie is over, but then he warns us that the war has just begun. Does it live in a jungle? No. Oh. Is it really fast? No. Does it live on the Great Plains of Africa? No. Hey! What is going on? Hold on, guys. Daddy, be careful on the road. Jerry? Get back in your car right now! Remain with your feet! What is this? It's the scene worldwide. There's anyone doing better than we are. We don't know. I'm not gonna force you. 
don't pretend you're not well suited for the job. Baby? Tell the kids I'm coming back. Provide a synopsis of such a film and have it make sense, like, you got me. I call it like I see it, and that's the movie that I saw. No, absolutely. And and I could say, yeah, but there's more to the story, which there is, but there's also not. So I think Andrea's synopsis is bang on, but... That's basically the bare bones of it. And when you think about the zombie movies that came before it, the really subversive, thoughtful, character-intensive, oppositional political themes that come out in it, this one is just bereft of any critical value. Oh, 100%. I mean, if anything, World War Z actually pushes zombie films backwards rather than moving them forwards. Yeah, I would totally agree. Again, it was a huge financial clout. The CGI was extremely pervasive, sometimes effective, sometimes not effective. I was actually really irritated at the noise that the zombies made. It's actually a complaint that I have about a lot of current zombie films is that they make really annoying screeching sound effect or something like that. just annoy the living crap out of me and this movie is furthermore boring we're going to talk about the production plagues that happen to it but the final scene is just really anticlimactic and the fact that it seems to wrap itself up into a nice story with a happy ending but then they try to draw it out into what is surely to become a trilogy i believe there's another oh, film yeah coming they out. they announced the date of the sequel actually last month and when that will come out i believe it's 2016 or 2017 and all i can say is good luck So the original script, I mean, the director, Mark Forster, was brought on board pretty much right off the bat. He had had some success with some blockbusters. Well, he actually um, started, his, if not his first film, his first kind of big quote-unquote Hollywood film was the film Monsters Ball, for which Halle Berry actually won her Best Actress Oscar. He then went on to do Finding Neverland, which is the story of J.M. Barry without all the pedophilia. And then he went on to make Quantum of Solace, which was the second Bond film with Daniel Craig. And I remember seeing that film in theaters, and I loved Casino Royale. And then Quantum of Solace, I just remember watching and having no idea what was going on no sense of what was happening to any character and then I don't know if he had another film in between that but then he went on to do eventually World War Z so for a director to have this kind of filmography behind him of a high budget action blockbuster and also a very dramatic film like Monster Ball it was kind of anyone's guess where this would go now the script was originally developed by J. Michael Straczynski and his script was leaked, and it was praised. It was so faithful to the book. Max Brooks, the author of the book, was really happy about it. There was tremendous hype building up at conventions because people were expecting a very faithful adaptation to the book, and that's not at all what happened. Well, because uh, the character of Jerry Lane, Brad Pitt's character, that was that was wholly an invention of screenwriters, correct? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> They took tremendous liberties, and in doing research, and I'm sure we'll post some of our research material and the essays that we've read of such tremendous production disaster going into this, 
having to do with Brad Pitt's company, Plan B Entertainment. And when you realize that the film started out in a bidding war between Brad Pitt's company and Leonardo DiCaprio's company, and then it landed in Plan B, the movie is really a vanity project for Brad Pitt. As I understand it, as I watch it, it's just glorifying Brad Pitt as your everyday white guy hero. Oh, like the major, like Jerry Lane's major characteristic is that he's good or slash awesome. That's all he is in every scene. He is so right and everyone else is wrong around him. He's, he's, He's the one light of reason in all this darkness and anarchy, which actually comes off in pretty racist ways considering that he's globetrotting and he's landing in these places where people think that they've got it figured out and they do to a certain extent, but when shit hits the fan, it's Mr. Whitey who (laughs) figures everything out and saves the day. Well, actually, my favorite moment to really explain that attitude of the film is early on, as Andrea mentioned, they decide to go to South Korea because one of the scientists on this ship where Jerry Lane and his family have been airlifted to seems to believe or seems to have evidence that Patient Zero is in South Korea. And if they can isolate that person, if they can figure it out, then they can develop a vaccine, they can get a hold of it, they can really save the day. So it's it's Brad Pitt's job. I know, you know, it's fucking Brad Pitt. That's it's Brad Pitt. It's not Jerry Lane. Brad Pitt takes the scientist. He's on a mission with the Navy SEALs, and they land in South Korea. And it's a really interesting scene to me as the plane lands, and they're like, "Okay, it's dark. We're out of fuel. You guys just have to figure this out right now." And Brad Pitt gives this scientist very specific instructions of what to do. Hold up. Keep your finger off the trigger. Which all results in the scientist getting scared, running away, and killing himself by accident by blowing his head off. And it's like, oh, no, he's always right. Jerry Lane, Brad Pitt is always right. And he's such a reluctant hero that he's kind of hard to get behind. It's like, I'm saving the world because I really just want to get back to my family. I actually don't give a fuck about the human race. I just want to get home to my wife and my two super irritating daughters. Oh, the most enfeebled daughters ever. If one isn't, like, screaming about her stuffed animal, the other one has asthma. So the movie toiled on in its huge high budget. It had a huge high budget opening scene where there's all this action and all this and him fleeing and explosions and fires and all that. And then he moves to another location where the production was so expensive because there were so many extras. And the production company, never having done anything on this scale before, was just like, ah, fuck, we got to feed everyone. We've got to orchestrate all this. And the bills just piled up. So their third and final act, which I think if you watch the movie to prepare for this podcast, you'll agree that it's very out of pace with the rest of the film and anticlimactic, and there's a reason why. The third act was supposed to take place in Russia and be a huge, bloody battle, but A, the money wasn't there. They had just run themselves out, and B, creatively and tonally, they were just bereft of an idea to wrap this up nicely. Well, I think this is, you know, World War Z is such an interesting example of Hollywood because they did actually shoot the scenes in Russia. They or you know, quote unquote Russia. They shot it, they were editing it, and it just didn't work. So they had to go back and they actually hired Damon Lindelof of Prometheus fame or Lost fame, whichever you like, as well as Drew Goddard, who we talked about in a couple episodes ago, who was the director of Cabin in the Woods. And they got to see Russia's and they got see rough edits and then they kind of were like no it got away from the family thing and they got away from the emotional core of the story so they rewrote this final third act which I believe is in Wales 
and they, you know, at the World Health Organization with fucking Doctor Who, and, you know, who cares? So we're talking about all the ways in which this movie was flawed. It was clearly not planned out properly from a story perspective, from a budget perspective. It hit all the wrong notes. In interviews, Brad Pitt is reported as saying stuff like, I wanted to make something that my sons could enjoy, a nice little PG-13 zombie action thriller where the hero saves the day. So already you're kind of like, fuck you, Brad Pitt. You're making this for all the wrong reasons. Fuck right off. And furthermore... I feel like this movie really talks down to you. Oh, God, I feel yeah. like what I was just saying about blockbusters appealing to the lowest common denominator, when you're watching it, you're like, who is supposed to enjoy this exactly? Who do you think we as the masses are? It's very condescending. I thought a lot when I was watching this film about the film that's kind of named as reinvigorating the whole zombie genre, which is Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later, which I think maybe one day we'll probably get to on this podcast, which is, it's, I really love that film. I hope film. so. I loved it too. Yeah. And, and I remember watching that film and it kind of, you know, Danny Boyle really hadn't had a big hit since Train Spotting. He'd kind of gone Hollywood with The Beach, which is a Leonardo DiCaprio film and kind of come back and was, you know, really doing quote unquote British film, British funded. And it got amazing reviews and it was a genre film. So it found an audience in North America. And I went to see it in theaters. And I remember sitting there and just being blown away by it. And I saw it in this big cinema in Toronto. And the credits started to roll and the lights came up. And the audience just sat there. And then eventually there was like a slow... And there was like this totally organic applause that happened. It really reinvigorated everyone to the idea of what zombie means and, and how it all happens. And I, Andrew and I have looked at several articles which, you know, really pinpoint, obviously, the George Romero films is, you know, really crystallizing the zombie metaphor. And then it died out for a bit because I don't think anyone really knew what to do with it. But it had a resurgence in the 90s with video games like Resident Evil, I would say, and several others, where the zombies became this unstoppable force. And you could always shoot them and gun them down, but there would always be more following them. But then with films like 28 Days Later, Shaun of the Dead, even the Dawn of the Dead remake, and all of the others that have come since, they've really explored the metaphor of the zombies. But I really feel like, as I mentioned earlier, that World War Z just takes it back to that point-and-shoot thing. Part of the credit that 28 Days Later gets for reinvigorating the genre is it sped up the zombies. Mm. Now, that was something that video games had been doing, but this was the first time we saw it on film. The metaphor of zombieism being a disease and being an infection was pushed to excellent creative lengths, and it really opened the doors for people to do it right. And it really contemporized the idea, because disease and epidemics is something that we understand better now. It's something that we're more able to relate to as a metaphor. But there was also an element of people were speculating that zombies have gotten faster because the audiences need them to be faster. And so there was kind of this audience desire, this commercial desire to speed everything up because we need more action and we need more this and we need more that and like less characterization and more blood and gore and stuff. And so I feel like World War Z really takes that to its horrible, horrible extreme. You've got people getting infected and twitching and turning right, right away. And like that scene where they're fleeing and it goes from a traffic jam to a bloodbath and T minus two seconds is so in your face that I really felt like it was an exaggeration of 28 Days Later and other films of its ilk. Definitely. I feel like World War Z is 
about zombies that people that aren't horror fans think that zombies are like. Like, this is their kind of, like, nightmare of what zombies could be. Whereas I feel like in genre films, they really explore the subtlety of it. Not only in a film like 28 Days Later, but also in films that we've talked about, like Pontypool. And, like, what does that really mean when our society crumbles? And maybe it's more bleak and nihilistic than this as long as we're all like white and we fight together then everything will be fine it's far more complicated than that and I don't think my eyes could have rolled harder than when things are hit on the head so closely so when Brad Pitt's daughter drops her stuffed animal and it goes off with this kind of uh, thing that it says here comes the number 12 train one two And Brad Pitt is able to deduce how long it takes someone to turn into a zombie based on his daughter's stuffed animal. And then that becomes the thing throughout the rest of the fucking film where he's counting to ten. And I, oh, I'm so over it. It's totally irritating. And World War Z also has a tremendous coldness to it that I've never seen in another zombie film where we don't have a single sympathetic character turn into a zombie and you're like, oh God. I'm actually sad for them. I'm upset for them. No, the dead are dead. Nobody mourns them. Nobody's upset about people dying. Everyone's just panicking to save their own ass. I thought it was so interesting. You're absolutely right. And I thought it was so interesting that in the final third act, when he's in the WHO institution and Brad Pitt's, you know, talking, he's like, this is important because I have a wife and family and I've got to get back to them and I've got to save the world because of them. And one of the other doctors talks about how he doesn't have a family, but then he actually lost his family to the zombie outbreak. I lost my son and wife in Rome. Brother, I lost my son to something that had once been my wife. And I thought it was so interesting that it wasn't like, I want to find a cure because I think my wife is a zombie, or I know she's a zombie, and I want to find her and I want to see if I can cure her and maybe I can still have that. And it was like, no, she's dead. She's a thing. She's an it. She's an other. Yeah, and I'm over it. Yeah. Brad Pitt doesn't even seem to have any lofty, we've got to save humankind. Like, he's kind of in it for his own ass. That's, that's the American way, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I thought it was so interesting that the ultimate satisfying conclusion of this film, and they keep saying this word, and to the point at the end where I was like, you guys don't even realize what you're doing, is he keeps saying, you know, we found a way to camouflage we found a way to paint over. We whitewashed everything that was happening. So things are still going on. We've lost cities, but we can camouflage ourselves enough to, you know, get through it. That's right, and it's, it's just so weak. It, the film begins and ends with these snippets of news footage, which I guess is maybe attempting to be a bit of a throwback to the book, which had you know, myriad perspectives and toyed with what the media was telling us and what we were seeing and stuff like that. The film opens with, it almost sounds like, random disasters. Mm -hmm. you know, the world is going to shit is basically what you got on the very outset of this film where there's a, a global warming and a, there, there was images of, of nature videos yeah. where it's just like the normal circle of life as the birds bear, are flying birds are flying and birds <laughs> oh, are no. eating each other and other animals are eating other animals and that's just kind of pitted against 
all these news reports and horrible things happening that it's a very cold, cold film. I actually liked, because I just kept thinking, it's that whole thing has already been parodied in Edgar Wright's 2004 film, Shaun of the Dead, where you have that final prologue where there's actually a cutting together of news clips to make the epilogue of the film, and it's actually very funny. And I just felt like, God, this film has no soul, and even more disturbing, it has no sense of humor. No, that's right. There was no laughs. There was only eye rolls. The rewatchability value of this film is nil. I mean, I saw it when it first came out, uh, I guess on video or so. I didn't see it in the theater. And then when we decided to see it again for this podcast, knowing what happens in the end, I got nothing out of watching it a second time. Because I will say this in defense of The Haunting, the 1999 version, is that it is crazy. If you have some friends and you want to drink some beers and, like, laugh at a dumb movie, that is a great movie to watch. It is so crazy. But World War Z is just dumb. Yeah, you definitely don't get that out of World War Z. There's no play. There's no humor. And there's very little artistry either. I actually had a question for you, thinking, because one of the things that I did actually find that was kind of funny, but the film definitely did not think it was funny, was how early on they all talk about getting intercepts that use the word zombie. You all read the same email I did, and it said zombies. And I was just wondering, for you having studied, like, you literally wrote a book about zombies. What did you think about it being used so liberally as a term in a film that was purporting to be kind of a geological thriller? Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to throw around the term zombie, if you're going to be self-referential to the point that the audience knows what a zombie is, you also have to kind of acknowledge the existing mythology of zombies. Do we have to shoot them in the head? Are they transmitted by this? Are they transmitted by that? And you can't just kind of cherry pick what you know about zombies if you're going to throw around that term. Personally, that's how I feel about it. There's a film that I reviewed for Rue Morgue a couple of years ago that was called Detention of the Dead. And the front of it, there's like a zombie cheerleader and a zombie jock. And I'm like, oh shit, this is going to be bad. It's awesome. It is so much fun. Because there's a pair of horror fans who are like, oh shit, zombies are happening. And they have a conversation about, here's what we know about zombies. We have to test if that's true. So I feel like it's a very fine line. If you're going to drop the Z word... You've got to know your shit. Like, I feel like a more adept filmmaker, they would have had a cutaway with like, you know, oh, there was an intercept that we picked up and they mentioned the word zombies. And we kind of think that might actually be what it is, that they would have done a cutaway to someone like in the U.N. calling Andrea Subasati or George Romero and being (laughs) like, guys, seriously, what the fuck? That would have been a better movie. And there was one moment that really struck me in this film. Maybe it's because I'm a feminist. Maybe it's because I co-host a feminist podcast. Who knows? But in the first act of the film, Jerry and his family, while they're still together, run into a New Jersey grocery store, convenience store, and they're looking for an asthma inhaler for his daughter, which he gets. Uh, And then they're just trying to grab food, and he and his wife split up the girls, and they go off and do their own little deeds. And then at one point, um, you know, Brad Pitt has gotten the asthma inhaler, and he's, like, going to go look and find his other kid and his wife. And the kid is just screaming in a shopping cart by herself. And he runs, and he finds his wife, and she's being thrown to the ground by two guys who I think are going to rape her or assault her or something. It was so weird. It's weird because they're going after her pants, and it's just kind of like, no, with women, you, you want to grab the purse. 
rather grab the purse and run. If you want to rob a woman, it's actually a lot easier than pickpocketing a dude. But they were totally going for her pants. I noticed that, too. And I think, again, to bring it back to 28 Days Later, I think the commodification of women and sex in the post-apocalyptic context was a part of what was really powerful about 28 Days Later. And so this was just... World War Z trying to borrow that and just doing it really ineffectively. Yeah, it was like one thing for, you know, the adults to pick on, but not Brad Pitt's sons. Right, and in that same scene, you've got Brad Pitt running into the pharmacy, and there's this random dude there who's armed, and they see him shoot people, and so he's suspicious of him, but he turns out to actually be very knowledgeable about the drugs. And then later, when Brad Pitt shoots people and he sees a cop, he puts his hands up. So they did try to tie in elements of the post-apocalyptic, who can you trust, who is an authority. Again, the lowest common denominator. We are the masses living in this. Are we going to cooperate or is it going to be every man for himself which is typically what goes wrong in these zombie films is people can't work together it toyed with those concepts but really just fucked it up if you haven't already figured it out i mean i think both andrea and i feel that there is really no passion or soul or understanding of humanity for a film that labels itself as such a humanistic film it's so empty it really is everything that's wrong with the blockbusters That's right, and that's kind of, I feel like we owe you maybe a bit of an apology, listeners. I feel like we've made you sit through two epic stinkers for the sake of proving our point, and so, I mean, what is our ultimate point? I I almost feel like our conversation thus far almost points to the fact that we're saying horror blockbuster, don't do it. The motivations and pressures that a blockbuster brings are just really not in line with what it is we love about horror. And that's kind of the bottom line is we're going to see remake after remake of studios exploiting successful franchises and knowing that they're going to get asses in seats just out of sheer curiosity. But truthfully, I can't think of a horror blockbuster that really succeeds apart from Jaws that we already talked about. Absolutely. And I think both The Haunting and World War Z made more than their money back. So I think in a lot of senses in the business world, you could deem them as profitable films. But they aren't beloved films. They aren't the films that we keep going back to that we're super passionate about. But because of that dollar sign, you know, the almighty dollar, they are worthy of a cultural discussion because this is what a group of adults far away in L.A. deems that we should see and thinks that we will enjoy. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with enjoying these films. There's nothing wrong with killing a few hours and sitting in some really sweet air conditioning and eating some popcorn and hanging out. But we have to look at the underlying value of these films. And I think ultimately we just see that they're worthless. Well, they did make it onto our podcast, didn't they? I think that's the ultimate measure of success. So to make it up to you listeners, we are going to have another giveaway. Rumorg Magazine has put out our third installment of the Rumorg Library series, and it's a book called Weird Stats and Morbid Facts. And if you read the magazine, it's Monica Kubler's monthly column. It's called The Coroner's Report, where it's got all these amazing factoids about horror, about horror personalities, or even just trivia bits that are interesting and morbid and we just put it out and I had the opportunity to proofread it so I've read the whole thing again and again and there's facts that just stick in my head that are so fascinating so we're going to give away a couple of copies. Yeah I didn't get to proof it but I have read it. I've read different bits and pieces of it and it's a fantastic book for any horror fan. There might be a couple things you know but you're going to learn a whole bunch by reading this book. It is so much fun. It is so beautiful. 
I am so excited that we get to give it away. So to enter the contest, we're not going to tell you how yet because we're going to make you pay attention. You need to be following us on Facebook or you need to be following us on Twitter and the details of the contest will soon emerge. So stay tuned for that. Absolutely. We have a lot of great interaction on Twitter and Facebook. So a tiny hint, you're going to be forced to interact with us on Facebook or Twitter. That's right, because unlike these Hollywood companies, we actually want to hear what you think. And our interaction with you means everything to us. It's a big part of what drives us forward and what keeps us being creative, because we are, unlike these Hollywood studios, accountable to the listener and not the almighty dollar of which we are getting none. So on that note, next month, again, we're going to make it up to you again. No more stinkers, guys, I promise. We're going to assign you homework that you're really going to enjoy. Yeah, it's just going to keep on getting hotter in the Rune Morgue vault this summer. We are going to be talking about two films deeply related, Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2. That's right. I'm so excited to talk about these movies. I love the films. And there's actually new developments in the whole mythos lately. Clive Barker has just released The Scarlet Gospels, which is supposedly the culmination of the Hellraiser storyline and the grand finale of Pinhead, who is arguably one of the most iconic horror villains of all time. There are no horror films like Hellraiser, and I think this will be a very new, a very interesting, and a very fun discussion. So I am super excited for the month of July. And that's coming up next month, listeners, so get your homework done, and until then, office hours are closed. Yeah.
stupid.